Good to see all of you guys. Um, if this happens to be your first time here at Hill City, uh, one, just so grateful that you're here, but uh, two, my name is John Wagler. I'm part of this uh, team here, and it truly is an honor to have you with us. Uh, you see the hot tub here. So if you are new, this isn't just normal. Um, we don't always have a hot tub here, but uh, we're going to be baptizing uh, three middle schoolers and one elementary student, uh, you know, next, uh, next service, which we're super excited about and going to celebrate uh, really well. And uh, it's been really cool to see what has been transpiring throughout our uh, middle school and high school students uh, over these past, you know, several months now. And uh, God's doing something really neat there. And uh, it's just so cool to see um, what God's doing. But we, we are in this uh, series um, where we're talking about the voice of our heart uh, based off the book Chip Dodd and uh, how that ties into the reality of who we are. And so we're talking about what it means to be emotionally healthy. And so just as we're doing every single week, who wants to be emotionally healthy? Raise your hand, look around, look at all the accountability that's happening around you, right? And no one's sitting back saying, no, it'd be great to stay emotionally unhealthy so I can ruin all my relationships, right? No one's actually doing that. But what's interesting is how quickly that can become a reality, how quickly we can become emotionally unhealthy, how quickly we can not deal with things the right way. And so every single week, we're going to look at one of the core emotions that we have. Uh, we've done hurt. Uh, we've done loneliness. And uh, this week, uh, we're going to do uh, sadness. But I want to show you uh, the chart first, uh, because this is what we look at every single week. And here's the chart. Into every emotion that's here, every core emotion, it has a gift and it has an impairment, you know, something that's not so good about it. And unprocessed hurt leads to resentment. Unprocessed loneliness leads to apathy. Uh, whereas, like, if you process it well, the gift of hurt is healing and uh, courage. And the gift of uh, loneliness is actually intimacy. And so each week we're looking at these things and how it begins to play in. And so uh, this week we're looking at uh, sadness. And so even when I think about this idea of talking about sadness, I felt this pressure to be funny in the, on the front end of the sermon. You know, like, maybe I should show like a funny meme or like tell a funny joke or something. And, and because, and I'm like, no, this is not the point. Like, it's not trying to like make everyone feel good, right? Because there's this thing around sadness that we want to avoid. And, and we want to think that I don't want to have any sadness in my life. I just want to be happy all the time. And what's interesting about that is that's not life. That's not reality. Um, that's not how all of this works. Even in the Bible, there's literally a book called Lamentations. You know, so even like for me to start thinking on the front end of, of, of wanting to just make sure everyone's good, you know, and have some like little funny moments or whatever. It's interesting even in my own process, I, you know, just thinking about, man, we don't, we don't really grieve well. We don't handle sadness well. Yet in the Bible, again, the whole book of Lamentations, you've got a lot of Psalms that operate in that way. You've got Ecclesiastes, you know. Uh, there's a lot of other things around in Scripture that, that talk so much about what deep sadness is, about what that can mean in your life. And, and unprocessed sadness becomes really detrimental uh, to us as well. And so we're going to talk about um, all that stuff. But when you think about our culture, uh, here's how I was thinking about it. I'll just draw like a fake graph here. But here's, here's what our culture is typically like. Uh, we'll just put money over here or friends. Look how great they are. Um, or maybe this is your house, right? And we think about this. And then this is just life over here. Here's how we think life should go. Up and to the right. That's it. 
Anything outside of that, we're like, I'm a failure, or why is God trying to smite me, or I must have done something wrong, or whatever, right? Everything in our life we think is up and to the right. We might be able to handle a little squiggle, but we can't handle like any kind of plateauing for any length of time, let alone, let alone if it goes down. And we are in this, like that's culturally kind of what we're we're pushed into and nurtured into so often, but that just isn't reality. We actually even do this in the church world. And uh, sometimes people will say something like this, the best is yet to come. Is that true eternally? Yes. Is that true practically in your life? I don't know. And so we can say the best is yet to come, but we should probably say possibly. Like realistically in our life. I know that's not a, that's not a good t-shirt. You know what I mean? Like the best is yet to come sells really well in the church world. However, however, maybe the worst is about to come. Maybe the toughest part of your entire life you're about to go through. Maybe, maybe there could be great suffering around the corner. Maybe. You know, when you've been with people who have gone through great suffering or great pain and in those moments, they didn't know it was coming. It just happened. And so, but when you live a life that's got to be always up and to the right, all of a sudden we can get crushed by those moments. Unless we learn what it means to process well, learn what it means to grieve well and and to engage things. And even as Christians begin to uh, be with one another communally, and stop saying things like, well, look how much you learned through that. Things like that actually like, show people that you have not grieved well. Um, we've been through some tough things as a family. And I remember uh, one of the hardest points of uh, our lives and a death in the family. And when people would come around and be like, yeah, but look how many people came to know Jesus through that. And we're like, we still lost our family member. You know, and so is there a truth maybe that some God can work a good out of tragedy? Of course, God can work good out of anything. But to be able to grieve well, to be able to be sad, to be able to engage in the proper way is actually what makes us emotionally healthy and becomes important in terms of how we engage uh, the world around us. In the book, uh, Chip actually writes this. He says, the more you live an open-hearted life of fullness, and which is the point, the more you lose. Sadness gives us the gift of valuing and honoring life. And so even this, I'm going to go ahead and guess that most of us in this room, when we've been sad or maybe you woke up sad with something in your heart today or you're going through something really difficult right now, you might not be seeing it as a gift, right? Sadness is a gift that we didn't want. Isn't that interesting? Like you start thinking about this reality and how we begin to view life. And a lot of times what happens is people will go into this mindset of, you know what I'm going to do to avoid sadness and to avoid pain? I'm going to shrink my life and shrink my circle and shrink my, like, my interaction as small as possible. That way I don't encounter too many people. I don't encounter too many life scenarios. I'm going I'm to try and just make it so small and, and not really experience life at all. And guess what? That doesn't work either because you're still going to experience sadness. You're still going to experience suffering. Uh, You're still going to experience despair at some kind of level. And then here's the thing. You're going to miss out on life. 
You're gonna miss out on celebrating. You're gonna miss out on the fullness of life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. 10. You're gonna miss out on what God has for your life because you've tried to like, pull away at such a level that you miss out on what God's actually doing around you. And so to just try and shrink back or just try and make it as small as possible is not the answer. But maybe there is something that God actually has for us. You know, I was thinking about my own funeral, which is fun. Um, I was thinking about my own funeral this week, and I want people to be really sad at my funeral. And, and here's why. I want there to, for people at my funeral to, to, to value my life and what I brought to this world so much that I want there to be a deep sadness that I'm gone. I want there to be a deep sadness that like, like my grandkids and hopefully great-grandkids, maybe, I don't know, but that, that they would be like, deeply sad that, that I wasn't there because there was, they valued my life so much. They honored my life so much. And, and the way I lived my life was, was in such a way that, that there was something attractive about it. And when that's gone, there's something missing in the life around us. But I also want there to be celebrating. Like, it would be awesome. So if anyone is around when this happens, I'm just putting this out there. It would be awesome if there was like a gospel choir there too that just was doing like old Kirk Franklin and Fred Hammond and like just letting it rip as well. Because what I want there to be, and this is what is interesting about the fullness of life, there should be a deep sadness when that's gone but also understanding how to celebrate really well. You see, if you can't understand deep sadness and you can't understand the fullness of celebrating. And so this idea and this juxtaposition of these things are so important to understand what it means to grieve well, to is it be okay to be sad, to understand what you might even be sad about instead of uh, glossing over everything. So when you think about sadness, this is what we saw in the chart. Uh, the, the impairment and we'll talk about this first, the sadness is self-pity, all right? And the gift, the gift is acceptance. Um, the impairment is self-pity. Uh, the gift is acceptance, acceptance of what's happening in uh, your life. And so I want you guys to repeat after me that sadness, sadness. Is, not is not weakness. weakness. See, so often we are raised in such a way to think that it is. To just, you know, grit your teeth and get over it. And why would you be sad for this long over that? That doesn't make any sense and, and everything. But that sadness is, is not weakness. There's something so powerful about um, understanding what you might be sad about. But to avoid it, to avoid it is actually weak. To avoid sadness is uh, to not engage the pain of this world. To avoid sadness is to not engage people's lives around you. To avoid sadness might not be, uh, it's to avoid the reality of, of, of maybe what God wants you to know and experience in your own life. I wrote this down this week as, as like, we will never be emotionally mature until we have the depth to handle grief and loss. So if you really, everyone in, you know, here raises their hands about wanting to be emotionally healthy. And if you want to get to that point to be emotionally mature, we have to have the depth to be able to handle grief and loss, to not just gloss over it, to not just move on, to not just uh, engage it to its fullest extent so that we can value and honor life uh, the way that we should. So let's talk about self-pity first. And as we're doing every week, just kind of listing out what self-pity can actually do uh, in us. And so self-pity hardens our heart. 
all right? Self-pity hardens our heart. Uh, We lose the value of memories. We lose the um, ability to, to soften towards the things around us and to the world around us. We, we lose the ability to actually fully engage the world. Um, this guy named Paul, who was one of the writers in the New Testament, he wrote all these letters to a bunch of different churches. And one of the letters that he was writing uh, is to the church at Ephesus. And, and he, he actually pens it this way. He says, he's talking about people who have just kind of veered off and gotten away from God and kind of living into, uh, to some degree, what, you know, kind of common terminology might be like a false self. And, and, and he describes them this way. He says, they are darkened. What's the opposite of dark? Huh. So if you think about it that way, Paul's describing this idea of like, there's this darkened element that happens. And you're missing out on the light of something because they can't experience like we should. So they darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their what? That is in them due to the hardening of their what? Yeah. There was something that got darkened inside of them, the hardened of their hearts. It, it, it moved them away from a full understanding of life which means a wisdom of life into foolishness, into a a darkened view and perspective of the world around them. He says, having lost all sensitivity, meaning they don't have any senses anymore. They can't engage their emotions. And sometimes we joke about not feeling things or being able to disassociate from things or becoming numb to the world around us because everything is just so bad. And what Paul would say is actually, no, that's so bad. It's incredibly unhealthy. He says, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity and they're full of greed that there's something that happens in us. That that greed, idea of greed, isn't just about money. Though it is about money. It's not just about money. It's about how we treat people around us. Impurity is the same way. It's like how we engage the world around us. It's like, how does that happen? It's because we've lost our sense to feel. We've lost our sense of what's going on inside of us. We lost the ability to connect with the way God wants us to connect with the world around us. We're talking so much about these core emotions because at the end of the day, we can't fully engage the reality of who God is or who God wants us to be unless we are moving in the path of emotional health. You just can't. It's an ongoing process. None of us will ever be perfect, but the reality is we'll never fully be able to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we're really unhealthy inside and we're darkened in our understanding of things. And so Paul's like, this is what happens. Our hearts become so hardened to the world around us. Self-pity also does this. Self-pity is manipulative. You guys have probably felt this before, experienced it. You've heard someone say something like, people should feel sorry for me. Do you know what I've been through? They should feel sorry. What ends up happening is we get in this state of being self-pity. We want to manipulate the feelings of people around us, the emotions of people around us. I wrote down a few that maybe you've heard before. You might hear people use language like this. Nothing ever turns out for me. Everything always fails. Everyone always hurts me. I may as well give up. Well, I'm glad they could be loved. Hopefully someone will love me someday. Must be nice for something to go right. Or someday I'll have a normal week. All these things are driven towards what? Self-pity. 
And what you're trying to do is kind of bring in people to, not, you're not just voicing things in, the, in, a, in a processing, helpful way. You're trying to just bring people into this moment of just being like, let me, let me bring you in with where I'm at. Not where I want to go, but just where I'm at. And I want you to stay here with me and pity me because I haven't fully processed the sadness that I'm working through. Uh, self-pity will also do this. Self-pity causes us to avoid loss. Um, to avoid loss. How many of you guys have had to, be honest, have tried to skip to joy? You're just like, ah, screw that. I'm joyful, right? You don't want to actually like fully accept the reality of what you're going through. And it's like, I'm not sad. I don't, I don't like that emotion. Ah, I don't even know what the name is. It's sadness, but I don't like it. But I just, I want to get to joy really quick. You know as well as I do when we've done this and I've, for sure done this, that joy you think you're experiencing is so shallow. That joy you think you have is not sustainable. That joy is not life-giving. It is just really brief. It's just instantaneous. And it's like, you, I mean, it's stripped away so easily by something else. Well, why is that? Because we haven't fully engaged the reality of the loss we've been through. And that loss can be so many different things. Sometimes when we think of loss, we just simply think of something big, like we, we lost someone in our family. But the truth is, it could be anything. You could be sad about a dream that once was that you're realizing right now will never be. A sadness of, of something that's happened in your family, a relationship you thought should be a certain way and just never got there. You might have wished you'd be at a certain point in your life and you're just not there yet. You might have moved you might have moved and there was a sadness that happened. You might have taken a new job, but there's a sadness that happened. You might, there's a lot of things that could, could kind of classify as sadness, but we avoid the reality of it. And until we understand the truth of our sadness, we can't fully process it in the way that we should. And so we can't ever engage it, uh, the, the full gifting of in that moment. Sometimes I sat with people who've been really sad about, uh, with parents that have been really sad about their child. And until you actually voice the sadness of what it actually is, you can't just be like, I'm really sad about my son. It's like, okay, but what about it? It's like, I, when you start processing it the right way, we start saying like, well, what does that move us towards? Oh, I, started, I want to value and honor my son even more and understand his life even more. And it moves us into a completely different direction rather than just being one to avoid everything. So for you, it might be through people-pleasing, uh, maybe it's acting tough and you're trying to avoid things. Maybe it's self-sufficiently or, or, or self-sufficiency or maybe simply acting like nothing ever happened. Here's a fourth way uh, self-pity works. Self-pity creates a defeatist mindset. Creates a defeatist mindset. So the way our brain begins to engage the reality of loss and sadness uh, in our life, uh, we have this like, cognitive interpretation of things. And when it's bad, here's what starts to happen. It, it starts manifesting itself uh, personally. And so you start saying things like, uh, I'm not good enough. Like through this time of sadness, you start saying things like, I'm not good enough. means when we start having language like that, our brains are not processing the reality of our sadness in the right way. Or maybe it's pervasive, meaning it's all throughout my life. Have you ever had that moment where you're going, actually going through a tough time and it's kind of time of deep sadness, but you think it's everywhere? And you think it's in everything? It's like pervasive, every, but it actually isn't, but it's just the way your brain's processing everything. 
And then there's an element where it's permanent, where you think you won't ever change, or it won't ever change, or you'll constantly be in this state. And so when our brains are not processing sadness in the right way, that's what starts to happen. And again, all these things become tied in together that lead us away from the truth of who Jesus is, that lead us away from what Jesus desires for our life. We even see this in scripture. Uh, Have you guys ever heard the story of Naomi uh, in in Ruth? Um, Anyone name Naomi in the room? Anybody? Your name means delight, just in case you wanted to know. So this is like this wonderful, like really cool name. The name is this beautiful name um, that means uh, delight. But you see uh, in this passage, watch what shifts in her, even from her namesake. She says this, don't call me Naomi. She goes, instead, call me Mara, which means misery. And you see in this moment, she's not actually processing her sadness in the right way. She's like, don't even call me that name. Like, you see how her brain's not processing it right. And so she's like, watch how she just describes everything. For the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So all of my life is bitter. And she pins the blame on God. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Would God ever do that to us? But no, her brain starts interpreting things in an interesting way. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? And we begin to see that even in her story, something began to shift and not processing it in the right way and begin to see um, actually the goodness of, of God in the midst of suffering and tragedy, being able to grieve in the right way, instead of naming things which she was going through and processing it in that way. Her brain just started shifting. And so we see the reality of what it means to, to maybe have a defeatist mindset. The last thing that self-pity does is uh, it can cause us to disassociate. And here's what that means. You don't want to feel anything. You're not connected to your emotions. Maybe you avoid negative emotions at all costs um, because of the fragility maybe of your psyche in that moment. And you start seeing this. Uh, here's, here's the interesting part of disassociating from our feelings. On the front end, it feels safe. And so maybe you distract yourself in whatever way you deem necessary, but on the front end it feels safe, but it never actually leads us to the health that we think it's going to. And honestly, it, it, it does not enable us to ever heal because that whatever we're sad about just kind of sits there this, this whole time. So the more we accept our sadness, the more we, uh, we, will, we won't ever like really feel, uh, let me rephrase that, the more we accept our sadness, the more probability you'll actually eventually feel alive again. And so I know it doesn't sound the right way, but it is. It's like when we can name our sadness and engage our sadness and and begin to see how God speaks into our sadness, the more we'll actually feel alive. One of the biggest stories around this, and I think is really important, is the story of Jesus and how he got sad. I remember first discovering this when I was probably eight or nine years old, and we used to have really long services growing up. On the low end, it was an hour and a half. That was probably like normal, hour and 35. And on the high end, if the spirit was moving, we were there for a while. And, uh, and so as an eight or nine-year-old, you know, there was no such thing as the internet um, at, at that point in time in 1984. So what I would do is I would grab the Bible that was sitting in front of me, or sometimes it would be the hymnal, and I would try and memorize what hymns were 
you know, what numbers were each hymn? I don't know. Guys, again, there was no phones or anything. So you're just trying to make do as an eight or nine-year-old. And um, Joy Unspeakable was on page 462. I don't know why I still remember that, but it's still there. And, uh, but here, I remember one day I was like, let me figure out what the longest verse in the Bible is. So I just took out the Bible and started thumbing through the Bible during the service. And it's in Esther, by the way. And then I was like, what's the shortest verse of the Bible? And so I'm looking through everything. And then I came across this moment where Jesus weeps. And I remember sitting there and thinking like, whoa, Jesus cried. That's not the message we typically hear about Jesus. That's not what's told about Jesus. Even when we tell that story, we gloss over it to some degree. We don't fully engage the reality of what was happening inside of Jesus and that he was weeping. And so the humanity of Jesus becomes so important to understand because there's no other faith system that allows us to see it in this way. That the humanity of Jesus and what he experienced, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, experienced grief, experienced pain, experienced suffering, experienced tragedy, experienced being alone, experienced all of these things that we experience. There is no other belief system that would like, honor that in that way. Only Christianity does. And so it's interesting that we miss out sometimes on this humanity of Jesus. It becomes so vital to our understanding of who he is in our life and what it means and how we engage the fullness of the story of who he is. And so with Jesus in this story, it's in John chapter 11. It's actually a huge pivot point in his ministry. And uh, what ends up happening is a friend of his named Lazarus dies. And we're going to pick up the story where... Uh, we're going to skip forward a little bit. He's, he's heard about it. He's talked to his disciples um, around it. They're like, what are you going to do? He's like, hey, I'm going to do something here so that you'll believe, which is, a part, is an interesting part of the story. But he waits a little bit, and then he finally makes his way back to Martha and Mary. Um, allegedly, Martha, there's some, well, anyway. Uh, we'll just call it Martha and Mary for this time. And, and what ends up happening in that moment is, Jesus encounters them and the reality of where they're at, but you start seeing something so beautiful in the relationships that Jesus had and how he's engaging the idea of suffering and tragedy and sadness in this world and what it actually means. So in John chapter 11, we, we see this. It says, Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, um, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. All right, so even in this moment, you start seeing there's this deep sadness, this overwhelming sadness of, of what's going on. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, um, if you had been there, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So this proclamation of who Jesus is in the midst of their suffering and pain. It continues on and says this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, look at this, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled that there was something in the core of who Jesus is and was that moved him. I mean, moved him in the, in the sadness of the people he's with. Like we just sang about, I'm already chosen, right? And I know who I am and all that stuff. And to understand the reality of that in our sadness right now, if we are truly, if we really believe that we're chosen, we're loved by God, that in our sadness, Jesus is deeply moved. 
deeply moved. He says, where have you laid him, he asked. He says, come and see, Lord. They replied, and here it is. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. There was something about his engagement, something about his acceptance to the reality of what was happening, that sadness and what sin does in this world and what um, destruction can do in this world, that the way that Jesus interacted with them, that it moved him to the depth of his soul. Now, there's a big part to this passage about what Jesus says and in terms of what he wants to reorient everyone's thoughts towards. But he comes in and first he engages the reality of their, their sadness. Now, what we, we talked about earlier was that the gift of sadness is actually acceptance. It's acceptance of what's happening in your, in your life. It's acceptance um, that sometimes life is hard. It's acceptance of the world around us. So let's look at what acceptance is. Acceptance makes us slow down. Acceptance makes us slow down. Some of y'all need to hear this today. Control is an illusion. It's an illusion. And so we are meant to slow down. To, to learn how to accept and to see the world around us, you have to slow down. The best way to get through painful moments is through rest. Not to just get busier, make things more chaotic. It's to slow down. Why do we slow down so we see why, why do people tell you to breathe? To slow down. You sat with someone who's, who's kind of hyperventilating or trying, you know, spinning out of control. You don't be like, speed it up, keep it, go. <laughs> but you're not saying like that. What are, you, what are you saying? You're like, you're like, breathe through your nose, out through your mouth, slow everything down. That's what changes things. And so acceptance allows us to slow down. Acceptance allows us to see control is just an illusion. Acceptance will actually begin to start changing your prayers. Maybe you've prayed, God, get me out of this. And what happens is, is when we slow down and we pray, we start saying like, no, God, I want to sense you in this. I want to experience you in this. I want to know your presence in this. It changes now, it doesn't mean that you sit, like if you're, it's in, again, if it's an abuse or something violent or something like that. No, it doesn't mean like, you're, oh, let me rest in this. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that I mean, our, our understanding begins that when we can slow down, piece things together, it's like, oh, it starts changing our viewpoint. Acceptance uh, leads us to truth. Acceptance leads us to truth, the truth of who we are, the truth of what we are in this moment, the truth of, of how we, what we want to experience, the truth that we need to grieve, the truth that to make sense of the, grie- the, the moment that we're in, the sadness that we're in. Even in your sadness, you're not defined by this moment. That's the truth. You don't have to be defined by this moment. But if we don't process it well, you will be because you start thinking in that manner. But I want to be defined by this moment and starts moving in the right direction. Avoiding sadness leads us away from truth. If we're being led away from truth, then we're being led away from Jesus. If we're being led away from Jesus, then we're heading towards this little word, it's three letters, rhymes with bin, starts with S, it's what? I know, we don't like to say that. And we don't like that, but if it's something's leading us away from truth, and here's where we end up, separated from the reality of who God is. The third thing here is that acceptance allows us to feel. 
Jesus being deeply moved. It happened when he saw her. Um, not grieving or crying about something hard isn't strength. Like I feel like, mm, I'm not, not going to cry in this moment. You won't see me cry. That's not strength. That's just not being in touch with the reality of your pain. Not being able to feel the moment, not having empathy, compassion the way that we should. The later we deal with our emotions, the bigger the consequences. So the, the later you want to deal with your sadness or your hurt or your loneliness, whatever it is that we're talking about throughout these weeks, the later you want to deal, you know what? Mm, I'm going to wait a little bit on that. The bigger the consequences relationally. The bigger the consequences interpersonally, the bigger consequences even with you and God in terms of what you might, in, in terms of how you disconnect from him. So when we're allowed to feel, things begin to change. Think about it this way. Uh, part of the beauty of Christian community is supposed to be that we carry one another's burdens. But I can't carry your burden and help you through something if I don't want to feel. And so I need to feel. And I need to build empathy. I need to build compassion. And that, what has it happened? Through the spirit of God working in us and the understanding of the world around us being able to accept the life God's placed in front of us. Chip says this way in, in the book. He says, you have to keep caring to live again and you have to keep living to care again. And so this, to be able to like truly live and feel and engage becomes critical to our understanding of what God's doing. The fourth thing that acceptance does, acceptance open, opens us up to the possibility for new life. Martha uh, comes to Jesus and talks about this idea of resurrection. Uh, Mary comes to Jesus and is like, man, if you were just here, he wouldn't have died. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, I'm about to do something here so that you'll actually believe. And, and what he's doing is like, when you can accept the reality of the life around us, that it can also lead to the possibility of something new a new beginning, a new hope, a new creation. In the story, Lazarus is raised from the dead and Jesus calls him out. He's like, Lazarus, and, and he had to name him by name or else everyone would have came out of the graves. But like, he says, Lazarus, like, come out. And he does, right? And it, and it sets something new in motion there, that there's this new life, this new understanding. People start seeing Jesus very differently. Now, does Lazarus die again? Yes, he does. Like, at some point in his life, Lazarus was like, man, this feels familiar. And, um, but at some point, he dies again. But the reality of what was established was this, man, accepting the world around me, accepting what God might want to do in this, and I can feel and I can see things the way that he wants me to see, is also an understanding that there's new life and there's new hope and there's a new creative element to it. And so, you'll laugh again. You can live again. You can love again. But you're also hurt again. But you need to feel again. But it only happens when we're willing to accept the reality of our sadness or what might have put us there. And here's the last thing. And Laura, you can come up. Um, acceptance is the result of a centered hope. A centered hope. There's this line uh, that we didn't read here, but there's this line where Jesus says in this passage, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. This is a really big part in terms of understanding hope. Understanding what it means to grieve well. You see, what's interesting is you put the story of Jesus at the center of everything. And you can grieve with hope. You can be sad with hope. 
You can cry with an understanding that you'll see life again. That this story of Jesus being at the center of everything allows us to have the right perspective. You take Jesus out of suffering and pain, what are you left with? You can think what you want about this whole Jesus thing, and that's cool. I love those conversations. But when it comes to suffering and pain and the reality of life, if you take the, the truth of who Jesus is out of it, what, what are we left with? Our own perspective, our own doing, our own life. But you put Jesus in it, it's a future hope. It's ability to grieve well and handle things well and even in the midst of loss to understand there'll be life. Not to be too uh, morbid, but um, everyone in this room is going to lose everything and everyone at some point. That's just reality. So, what kind of life do you want to lead now? And where does your hope come from? Is Jesus at the center of it? Because when we can accept that reality, we can start seeing things in a much different way. It doesn't mean that grief is gone or that you can put a timeline on grief or anything like that. It just means there's a larger truth that speaks into our grief, that speaks into our sadness, that allows us to see things just a little differently. So I'm asking you guys to bow your heads and we're gonna sing one more song here. But I just want you to just process for a second. Maybe you wanna process um, Maybe there's a sadness you've been avoiding. Maybe there's things you've been holding on to and you're realizing I've moved into self-pity and haven't been able to love again. I haven't been able to experience life again. I haven't felt like I could laugh again or see light again or because I haven't processed well. Believe that at the end of the day if we move towards nothing else but Jesus we see hope. We see life. there is just something about that name Jesus that all of these other things are going to go away but the name of Jesus never will so you stand and sing this last song with us